There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grumbacher, and we've got an awesome show for you coming up. This week, I was joined by Jim Cantrell. Jim is the CEO of Vector Space Systems, a company developing rockets to take satellites into space. We had a great conversation that went from the overall space industry to the specifics of the rockets Vector is designing to the personality traits and characteristics he most values and the advice he gives to young people. Vector is scheduled to launch one of their rockets next week, so keep an eye on the news. You can find out more information about Jim and Vector at VectorSpaceSystems.com, as well as their company Facebook and Twitter accounts, which are listed in the show notes. Definitely encourage you to check it out because it is fascinating. If you'd like other information on the conversation today, you can click Contact Us in the show notes, and we'll get you what you need to make that happen. Thanks, as always, for listening. Remember to tell a friend. That's enough about that. Let's go. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher. Joining us in spirit today is Centauri Minor. Helping us move from awareness to action is Jim Cantrell, the CEO of Vector Space Systems. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Glad to be here. Appreciate you being on today. From taking part in Auto Shop at Yucaipa High School to disrupting the space industry. Jim, what are you working on here? We're building rockets to uh, give people uh, access to space. So what, what we're doing here is called Vector Space. And uh, Vector is uh, building, first of all, small rockets that uh, can launch small satellites. So unbeknownst to people who aren't in the industry, uh, the space industry is going through somewhat of a transformation, much like the computer industry did in the 80s, where the satellites are getting smaller, they're getting less expensive. The Back in, in 20 years ago, satellites typically were 100, 200, 300 million dollars each, took four and five years to build, launch cost as much to do that. Nowadays, there are satellites that are, that are being built for tens of thousands of dollars, size of a loaf of bread, and uh, could be launched for hundreds of thousands of dollars. So they're proliferating in numbers, kind of like the PCs did back in the in the uh, 80s. And so what we're seeing now is the industry is, is literally transforming from the old hardware-centric to a more small software-centric industry. And it's in the early stages, and that's uh, what we think is going to be a fundamental transformation of the way humanity uh, uses space for commerce, for communications, for observation, and so forth. And so what Vector was stood up uh, to do was to lower those barriers to getting first the assets in space and later the, the intellect and the ideas into space. Got it. Now, I think that I read somewhere on the website, it talked about how it's a $400 billion industry. How would that's why not 375? Why not 450 billion? How did how does that number come about? Market uh, estimations are kind of like politics. You believe what you want to see, <laughs> right? So it's it's roughly a half a trillion dollar industry. Okay. Uh, and, and... Sorry about that. That's okay. For those of you who can't see, it's an enormous red phone, which is ringing. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, it's a, it's a roughly a half trillion dollar industry. It's growing pretty fast. So of that half a trillion dollars, the majority of it's actually satellite services. So whether you realize it or not, uh, consumer services are largely based off of satellites. So if you watch you know, cable TV, a lot of that rebroadcasting is done through satellites. If you have DirecTV or, or Dish Network, those are all direct broadcast satellite to your home. Uh, then there's there's iridium phone systems. There's you know there's all the telecommunications goes through that. So so about three hundred million dollars a year or billion sorry three hundred billion dollars a year of that is is through com- consumer services. So that's all transparent to the user right now. That is literally just the beginning of the future, I think. So the rest of it, the two hundred billion dollars, is in actually you know the ground support systems. So the antennas, the ground systems, is the large majority of that. Then you get down to building the satellites and the rockets. That's actually, you know, in the in the hundred billion dollar category. So that's the the more minor part of the industry, oddly enough. So most of the money that's made here is made in in, in the services. So with that idea, you can see that that once people are able to lower those barriers, uh, we think that that's going to grow sort of the top end of that, which is the data side of the of the market. And so we, we are firm believers that we're looking at the next multi-trillion dollar industry. And there's not many of those. Yeah. Um, the The industry itself right now is, is sort of antiquated. It's old. Uh, it was a government-led industry. and There's nothing wrong with that origin. But recognize that the government, when it, when it dominates an industry, does so in what I call a Soviet economic system. And I say that deliberately be provocative in in thinking about it. So if you realize that when the government uh, builds something, they they set a five-year plan typically of what they want to build so they can set their five-year budget. Uh, They they set the price for it uh, because they have a budget. They set what's going to be built, how it's going to be built, and then they choose who's going to build it. And I spent a lot of time in the the former Soviet Union, and I'm here to tell you it's exactly what the Soviets did. So we, we... build a system that mirrored the Soviet system to defeat communism in defense of capitalism, one of the great ironies of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so what really is happening is we have an industry that has grown up around that, has evolved around that, that is really not prepared for a commercial, truly capitalistic kind of approach. And so what we're finding is this microsat industry is really where the capitalism starting to get injected. Primarily because the costs are lower, and so that the investment dollars are attracted to that because they can take risk on low investment dollars. And so if you're going to spend $100 million on, on some business idea or some asset, you're going to take less risk than that with that $100 million investment than you would with a million dollar investment. Sure. It's one of the basic principles of investment. So that's the beauty of this microsatellite. Uh, revolution, as I'm calling it, is, is it's attracting a lot of investment dollars from people that you'd never expect to uh, ever have invested in space uh, applications. For example, what, what are some of those applications? So one of the major ones right now, and I think this is just the tip of the iceberg, is, is earth imagery. Okay. So traditionally, earth imagery, if you go back to the 50s and 60s, was derived from high-altitude aircraft or spy satellites. And it was used so that we could know what our enemies were doing. Were they massing troops? Were they doing all these things? And so, ironically, over time, the government who built those spy satellites uh, sort of put themselves out of a job because their spy satellites became bigger and more expensive. And then in the 90s, 
the commercial satellite, uh, imaging satellite revolution occurred, where it was actually made legal so that, that it, was, it used to be illegal for U.S. companies to do earth imaging below a certain resolution. And so there were some reforms in, in the commercial thinking during the Reagan era, primarily, that allowed commercial remote imaging uh, to be done from satellites. And what's happened is that that capacity was so enormous and the, and the cap, capital efficiency of those companies was so high that they outpaced the government. And so now the government buys all their, all their spy satellite imagery from private companies and only builds a number of spy satellites for what they call exquisite measurements. Okay. So in other words, very special things that, that there's no commercial demand for. So we found through having this enormous volume of commercial satellite imagery, we get things such as Google Maps. Uh, we get things such as uh, the, these, these services where you can look at your, at your town as it evolves. And one of the problems with the way it's done now is there aren't enough satellites up there to produce enough images on a regular refresh basis. So they, they, they tend to be a little slow. So if you watch your, your house on Google Maps like I do, I can tell you almost when the pictures are taken and they refresh, you know, if you're lucky every six months, if, if you're unlucky every few years. Got it. And so what we're finding a lot of these small companies are starting to do is build constellations of these little satellites that have less resolution than say Digital Globe has but they have more often uh, refresh rates than, than, the, than the Digital Globe guys. So this gives the public sort of a different set of imagery. And, and for example, Planet Lab is one of, the, one of the bigger companies in this respect. And their whole motto is a refresh image of every surface of the Earth every day. And so they want to create this living, breathing uh, image cloud of Earth. And so you start to think, what can you do with that? And it's tremendous, even if it's at low resolution, it's a tremendously powerful tool to have. Yeah. Now, the reality is you can't really do that because of cloud cover and other things like that. You can't literally see every part of the Earth once a day because it's going to be some of them just plain covered up. Yeah. But that's the goal of what they're trying to do. And there's other image uh, providers that are coming along with that as well. So curiously from that has sprung what's called image analytics. And so this is, if you've heard of big data, this mm -hmm. is another version of the big data play. And what the image analytics guys do is they, they, they buy up this imagery from these providers and they run artificial intelligence engines on them. And you may scratch your head and say, why would anybody want to do that? Well, so what they're finding is that there's primarily in the first early adopters or Wall Street uh, bankers and investors. So they're looking at things like oil supply. That's one of like the, the, the obvious ones. So from, from above, we've known this by using uh, helicopter photography, you can see how much oil is in, a, in one of those storage tanks because the top actually goes up and down. You don't see that when you drive by. Hmm. But if you look at it from top, you can measure how much is, is, is in the tank by the shadows that are cast. Wow. So if you develop a uh, artificial intelligence engine that scans all the images for round shapes with shadows, uh, what, the, what some of these companies have found is there's, there's oil storage facilities nobody knew existed. And they can get a dynamic everyday measurement of how much oil capacity is out there and how much is in storage and so forth. So you get a, a, a real-time view of what's going on in the commodity market. And then they make their bets based on that. Uh, other examples, what's going on in parking lots, okay? So uh, watching traffic in parking lots. If you look at a certain time <laughs> of the day, you can see where the traffic goes. And that means... This is where people are going. So you can predict 
potentially say what Walmart's uh, revenues are going to be by how many people are shopping there. So there's one famous example at Chipotle a number of years ago when they had this ramp up and their stock price went up. Um, people were actually looking at their parking lots with, with satellite imagery and they discovered that there was a lot of gathering around Chipotle of cars. So it was a very popular place around noon and uh, around dinner time. And so there were a lot of bets placed on Chipotle. People made a lot of money off the satellite imagery. Hmm. It's public data. Right? Yeah. So, so then the question becomes, what can you do with this? And, and really the sky's the limits, right, with, with this kind of data. Now, in this case, these analytics companies have to recognize somebody, a customer that will pay for, for this, this data feed and then justify, you know, creating this artificial intelligence engine. So we foresee a day when these kinds of constellations exist and that the average consumer can then develop an app much like you see on your cell phone and you can deploy that app onto the constellation and it can do its own little artificial intelligence and, and so somebody might be interested in a very specific thing for example a county building department let's scan the county we're living in and, and find all the new buildings and check them against the permits to make sure we don't have illegal buildings just that's sort of an easy example but you can imagine everything from that to other wall street folks who have their own particular interest so once those barriers to access come down, we think this creates a gigantic explosion of, of big data for surveillance. So that sort of putting my libertarian hat on, yeah. uh, the other side of it is, is our government can't hide from us as much as they'd like to. And other governments can't hide from us. And, and governments can't hide from governments. And if there's a lesson from the Cold War, which I lived through, is that transparency actually is the pathway to peace. And one of the reasons, and we still have the Open Skies Treaty with the Russians, they fly their aircraft over our facilities and they're free to photop, photograph them. Uh, that policy of openness and open skies is really what kept us from blowing each other up. So I'm a big believer in this as being a positive force to mankind, a positive force to prevent tyrants from doing things to their, their populations. If we had this sort of thing in World War II, and people would have seen the death camps coming together. Can you imagine, you know, the social force would have come together to prevent that? Right. So wearing that, I think it's a, also a very good force for positive uh, in, in humanity. And, and, you know, one of Elon Musk's goals and putting his internet in the sky up is sort of the same thing. If, if all the world's populations can communicate, that gives less opportunity for the governments to, to oppress the, the populations and keep them trapped. Right. Here all this time, I thought that we were trying to go to outer space for stuff in outer space, and it turns out it's all to... Well, it starts here. See what's right? going on. We live on this planet. It starts here. And, and if you look at the history of exploration, uh, and I'm a big student of history, North America is a great example of the Americas as a whole. Uh, the early explorers, I found out my ancestors came here before... Uh, the pilgrims, and I scratched my head when I learned this through this genealogy.com. I'm finding out my ancestors were born here in the late 1500s, hmm. and it turns out they were merchants. The early merchants came here, so Columbus came first, set up you know the, the fact that it exists. They made several voyages later, but then the merchants started landing on the shores, you know, and, and setting up little beachheads, and gradually this became colonized based on the economics of coming here. You know, some were seeking religious freedom, and for whatever reason, the pilgrims sort of get the credit for being the early settlers in the United States, but it's not really true. It was the merchants that came here, and it was the merchants that built the roads, it was the merchants that built the cities, 
And, you know, these were economic uh, ecosystems that, that surrounded the people that lived here. So the same thing is happening in space and will continue to happen in space, whereas we, as we move off this planet, which is our destiny, I mean, there's no doubt in each one of us we have that DNA that all our ancestors had that made us want to leave. You know, you think of, you think of what caused people back in the, let's say the 1600s even, to give up a comfortable life in Europe in a village that you knew, get on a boat and go to some place that somebody tells you is a great place to go and you got all this opportunity. Right, it's awesome there. You're going you're gonna to pack your family <laughs> up. It's awesome there. We don't know the first thing about it. You don't no, have idea. Any, no way to have pictures, nothing. Get on the boat. You're on there for three months going across the ocean. You're laying on this strange place. Hopefully. Yeah, and, and take care of yourself. So, so those people had some very strange DNA in their bodies that made them wander, and they, went, they, they believed in making things better for themselves and they could explore. That still exists, especially in this society here in the United States. I think that's one of the things that makes us different in this country is because we are descendant from those people who sort of genetically self-selected themselves from, from the population by doing that. Not to say any superiority to it, it's just a characteristic of our ancestors. So it's not surprising to me that the space exploration really begins from this country as well. Mm -hmm. um, and clearly we're not the only ones doing it, but it's, it's one of the places where it really, really started because we are a frontier society. Mm -hmm. So that, that economics we're seeing is spreading the, the, the presence of humanity, even through robotics, into space on, on a pretty persistent basis. It's just a matter of time before that goes to other bodies in the solar system that makes sense to be on. So the Moon, Mars are really the two that kind of start to make sense. Beyond Mars is tough, closer than the Earth is tough. So those are probably the ones for now. And then eventually, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I watched Star Trek and wanted to build the Starship Enterprise. Yeah. Know? Growing up in a dusty little town in Yukaipa, that was my big dream, right? And uh, who knows, we'll have the technology someday to do that. But uh, mm -hmm. uh, it's this, this, this economy following the explorers, reinforcing the, uh, the ecosystem that's really gonna drive humanity into space. Is one of the, the things I really wanted to talk to you about was what is sort of best kept secret about space right now? And it seems that we've sort of answered it that a lot of the applications are just turning the lens back on Earth. Right. What else do, that do you know is really going on that the majority of people probably don't? So there's really two parts to what's driving space exploration right now. We use exploration in the general term. I mean, I call it space commerce. Um, I view it literally as a business. So, so the, the globally observed Earth is certainly one of them that we put our finger on. The other one I alluded to is the globally connected Earth. And so witness just our terrestrial communications. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm over 50 years old, and it's not very long ago I recall uh, you know, making a phone call overseas was a big deal. You know, now we're connected by internet all times of the day. Right. Uh, I've got people in India that are sending me requests for consulting work. And the, the world is connected in ways that we never imagined. But it's still, literally, believe it or not, in pockets. If you drive off, you know, we're here in Arizona. If you drive off the, the beaten path here in Arizona, you don't have to get too far into the desert where you've got no cell phone coverage, therefore no internet, no communication. In a way, it's strangely refreshing. In a way, it takes me back to the 70s when all you had was landlines, you know, you, right. you, 
get at your friend's house and call your mom and say, Mom, I'm here. Clink, you know, be back at 5 o'clock for dinner. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't, you were in trouble. So to be able to globally connect the earth is, again, you know, one of those fundamental changes that we don't understand the full implications of. And I, I alluded a little bit to the ability to, to, to prevent repression of, of large populations. Mm-hmm. That's certainly one of them. But this ability to share information from everywhere, I think, will be a revolution in, in the way that humanity actually lives on the earth. And so we, we are just beginning to see the tip of that iceberg. And uh, satellite communications gets there, but the barrier to, to you know, communicating with a geosatellite is pretty high. You need a base station, and you, know, you can get you know, broadcast TV in the middle of the desert, but you can't get cell phones. So, so that's one of the ironies of things. You see these mm. trailers in the middle of the desert with a with a direct TV, right? You know, so that's just starting to see the future coming. And so you've got OneWeb is a company um, that IntelSat just merged with them. IntelSat's a traditional provider of geocommunication satellites. So they're raising several billion dollars to put a worldwide internet up that your your little Wi-Fi will work everywhere in the world off of these little tiny satellites, microsatellites. So that's an artifact of the microsatellites getting cheap enough that they can be effective at, at those uh, at those low altitudes and actually broadcast internet. Elon Musk has his version of that with 7,000 satellites. Somebody's gonna be successful. I don't know who the bet's gonna be. We went through this about 20 years ago. Iridium now has a phone system that if you have their special phone, you can get you know phone service anywhere in the world, and it works pretty well. I helped those guys out in a number of different ways over the years, and it's it's a it's a good system. It's still expensive. Military uses it a lot, and so that's the other thing you start to find is is you know a lot of this money that's spent on the military use of space uh, gets deferred off into commercial. So so they end up using things like commercial geocommunication satellites. They end up using Iridium. I think military is about half the user base of Iridium right now. So so this also becomes a positive effect, at least in the US, on on our taxpayer base, at least it should be, that you know if the government's not developing the stuff they're using commercial, it's much more cost effective. So in theory, you know, the the, the, the government agencies could knock down some of what they're spending uh, on on these sort of things. The reality okay. is they don't because they see it as a jobs program. Mm-hmm. Their world is, there's a pie, it's this big, and I fight for my bigger share of it. The entrepreneur's world is, the pie grows, and, and therefore you can get a bigger piece by having the yeah. growing pie. So, fundamentally different worldview. So, is there a, a traffic jam for people trying to get satellites into space right now? So, there's, there's a, a jam in trying to get orbital access, in other words, to get a launch. So there's more demand, particularly on the small end, for launches than there are capabilities to get them there. Okay. So to, to be clear, so there's, there's satellites to the size of a car, that's sort of the traditional stuff, and then like the SpaceX Falcon launches that you all see on TV, those are launching those kinds of satellites. Now, there's always excess capacity, sort of like in the trunk of your car, and that's where the little microsats get tagged on. Problem is, is the little microsats then become a liability to the bigger one, and not everybody wants them to go along. It's like screaming kids in the back of your car. Mm. So just because a, a nice family with screaming kids wants to go to Chicago with you, doesn't mean that that hundred dollars off the thousand dollar trip is going to be worth your time and effort. So there's there's a tension, a natural tension there, where microsats want to go, but the primaries really don't have a reason to bring them. 
So, so what people have started to resort to is, is buying these complete big rockets and, and then putting like 100 of these satellites on them. India did this recently. That creates something that looks like a porcupine in space. You know, when they go up there, they pop off 100 satellites. That creates traffic issues. Right. So, so there is traffic issues in space. Mm-hmm. Um, there's certain orbits that are very popular. and there, There's debris problems. Um, so, so you understand... The closer you are to the Earth, there's still atmosphere out there. And, and so the closer you are, the denser it gets. And that, that tends to limit satellite life. So say if you're at 200 miles up, you know, a little bread loaf sized satellite will stay up about six, six months. If you go up about uh, 1,000 miles, it'll stay up there 100 years. Okay. So there's, if you're up high enough and there's reasons to be up there, uh, and there's a lot of satellites up in certain high orbits, if you're up with those guys which you would be if you co-launched with them. So then, then now you're a debris hazard because A, the radar can't see you. B, um, you know, there's a lot of you up there. The radar can't see me because I'm too small? Too small. Yeah, that's the other problem is the further you get away, the harder it is for the radar to see you. So if you're low and you're small, they can still be seen, right? So the Air Force, are, are we used to watch for nuclear missiles and now they watch for stuff in space. They become space traffic cops. So it's an odd sort of transition for the Air Force. As, as space warfare evolved, and, and what's kind of interesting is actually microsats evolved from space warfare, believe it or not. Some of that technology really did come from there. Uh, this, the Air Force got very interested in knowing what's in space so they can detect anomalies. In other words, if some hostile countries launch something hostile to their assets, they can track it and know about it. So... Uh, about three years ago, there was a collision between a Soviet, an old Soviet booster that had been up there 20 years in a very high orbit, and one of the Iridium satellites, and uh, they collided and created a huge debris cloud in, in an orbit that was full of satellites. And so the Air Force, based on that experience, um, started a program uh, out of the, the Joint Space Command where they're actually doing calculations all the time to see where the collisions might occur. So they let the satellite operators know, hey, you know, at such and such a time with this satellite, you've got what's called a conjunction. You, you might hit, you're within, if you can imagine these imaginary balls around each of the satellites, your balls are going to collide because we don't know exactly where they're at. We, we've got measurements, but there's errors on the measurements. Yeah. And so uh, the, you, you can't know for sure. I mean, there's some probability. So when the probability gets close, then they warn you, so maybe you can move your stuff out of the way. So, so that's a problem for the future. If you're down low, there's not so much of a problem because it tends to clean itself out. And how would you move it out of the way? So you have to have your own little rocket engines on the on the satellite. So okay, so the satellites have the ability to move. Not all of them. In fact, most of them don't because okay. the rocket engines are expensive. So one of the things we're doing here is we have these little little ion engines and they use electric thrusters. So all satellites have electric power. You turn the power on this and it ionizes a little titanium tube, creates thrust. And so if you turn that on ahead enough, uh, ahead of time enough, you can move out of the way. Hmm. And these things we can build for $1,000 a piece. Got it. So, so that's one of our technologies. It's a no-brainer. Yeah, hopefully. And so that's part of, you know, we're, we're trying to create an ecosystem answer to the Microsat world and trying to anticipate some of these issues. Hmm. And we want to be the guys who who are the microsystem ecosystem got sort of the apple of space, if you will. And so we've got the rocket. We're developing, I alluded to the, the, the 
constellation you could program. We call those software-defined satellites. We have a dozen patents on that concept, so we own that idea, and we're putting an imaging constellation up. And then the other side of it is all the technologies for our customers that come to us that we launch into space to make sure that we can help solve this problem of debris. Right. And I, geez, space is big. That's that's probably going to be the statement of the show today. <laughs> is there a way to, to estimate? Do you know how many satellites are currently out there? I should know, but I don't. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's in the hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands. Yeah. Yeah, so you can go online and look at the, the, there's clouds of, you know, the dots are bigger than the satellites, but it, it sort of shows you that there's certain orbits where there's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff crowded together and other places where there's not so much. So there, there tends to be a lot in, in about 300 kilometers, well, more like 500 kilometers to 800, because the, those don't clean out very much. I launched a satellite 20 five years ago that died and it's still up in one of those orbits is to be there for a hundred and some odd years. So the Vanguard satellite, which was one of the US's first satellites, still up there. It's the only early one that we launched is still up there. So people have got thought talked about going up and retrieving it. Um, but uh, you know most of the stuff closer just tends to take take care of itself now. It just falls. Yeah, it just burns up. It turns into, you know, you might think it's a meteor shower, but okay. a lot of times it's a satellite burning up. And most of that stuff doesn't survive reentry, so it just no. burns up and turns into molecule dust, you know, that will eventually fall to the ground. Got it. So you might have satellite sprinkled dust in your sure. sure. <laughs> and if, if there was no barrier to uh, us putting satellites into orbit, how many would go up every day, do you think, or just over the course of a year? Well, let me just talk to you about where the market is right now. So, uh, last year we put 300 up worldwide. Okay. You did. Not not we personally, but we as a species put 300. Got it. The world put 300 up. Okay. So, so there are over a thousand satellites waiting to launch. They've been built. They can't find a ride. So there's, there's an overcapacity of big rockets, right? But there's an undercapacity of the ones to launch, the ones that are waiting to launch. Okay, so what's the average cost of those satellites, of those 300? So I would say the average cost is probably about $70 million, something like per. that. Per? Per satellite, yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah, so, so well, that's maybe not true because there's there's going to be 100 of them at that and then 200 at, say, a million bucks. So, got it. so you got uh, $200 million plus whatever that makes. I don't know. Good enough for you. Yeah. So, so no, there, there's a lot of money being spent on that. There's like three or four billion dollars a year being spent spent on satellite construction. So, if you divide that out, you know, so that's uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not far off actually. Yeah. So, so within five years, the demand is such, and these are just missions that have been identified that that are being built right now that people have money for. Over a thousand a year will be going up in okay. five years. We believe we vector believe that. If we give them a way to get them up efficiently and, and and often, that that demand will probably triple or quadruple in no time at all because there's that much demand for it. One of the big risks when you start a satellite company, especially the small ones, is actually launching it, which is ironic, right? So you could build the satellite, but you can't launch the damn thing. Yeah. So that's part of our idea is, hey, we've got to get this launch capacity in place so that people can go when they want, where they want instead of waiting around for the odd ride to Chicago. 
Got it. Nice. So you currently Vector has has two prototype or has two rockets. Yeah. So we're, we're we've got two different sizes that kind of like the way General Motors built their cars for years. They're based on the same parts, you know, same engines, and so on. So we've got a small one and a big one, and they're both very very small in terms of the overall size. So our Vector R R stands for rapid. That's our first one to market. It's our smaller one. And it serves the, the, the very small market of uh, like 60 kilograms and less. So it works out at about 140 pounds or less for and satellites. That, and that one's about 42 feet tall. Yep, it's about 42 feet tall. I can take you next door and show you okay. our first flight model that's going up next week. Um, no kidding. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I'll show it to you. Um, so so that one uh, is, we're going to launch probably 100 of those a year. Okay. And then we have the, the heavy and we call it the Vector H because, you know, the heavy rockets are these big, gigantic things that can go to the moon. This one sent a little thing to the moon, but it, it's tongue-in-cheek, right? So our, our heavy version is uh, about 250 pounds to orbit. And it's it's basically the same rocket with longer tanks and a couple extra first-stage engines. And everything else is the same. So it's, you know, it's just different fuselage and a few things like that. So we can dynamically allocate our production uh, between these two rockets, depending on what the what the uh, demand is for them, and I, I believe that one's fifty two feet tall. Yeah, it's about fifty two feet. Just yeah. folks have an understanding. Yeah. You can go to the website and they have diagrams of these. So forty two feet tall for the the smaller one, and fifty two feet tall for the bigger one. Yep. Yeah. So so they're uh, both liquid uh, rockets. So that means they use liquid fuels, and uh, sort of the alternative to liquid fuels is solid. So if, like the the shuttle. The, uh, the tall, skinny rockets on the side were solid boosters, and that's what, of course, caused the uh, Challenger to blow up in, uh, in 1986, uh, was the solid rockets. But, you know, solid rocket, you ship it with the fuel in it. The liquid rocket, you ship it empty, and you go to the launch site, and then you fuel it up there. So what, what is it that makes it solid? So you mix the oxidizer and the fuel together, and so it's like a bomb, <laughs> but it's a controlled bomb. So it burns from the inside out in, in the inside of the engine. So the fuel itself is really a solid material. It's like rubber. And uh, <laughs> it, it, it has everything it needs. It's got all the oxygen and the, uh, and the fuel to burn. So it, it, it literally, it's a long column on the inside, sort of a hole up the middle of it. And it burns from the inside out. And as it burns, it spits the, the stuff that's burned out the back which creates thrust. So it's a pretty simple device. Yeah, it seems dangerous though. It's damn dangerous. <laughs> I, I went, uh, I spent, you know, my years in college in Northern Utah, right next to the, the Thiokol facility and Thiokol built the big boosters for, uh, for the shuttle and then they built a lot of like the Minuteman and you know, all of our ICBMs that launch nuclear weapons are all solids because you put them in the ground and if you treat them right, you don't have to do anything. When they're ready to use, they're ready to use, just boom, just like that you go. So that's the advantage of solids. And uh, like on, uh, on submarines, the U.S. submarines have banned liquid boosters on there because they don't leak and they don't do all these things. So, so solids are preferred for a lot of things, primarily military. Hmm. Uh, and the Thiokol, every now and then, you know, it seemed like once a year they'd have a big explosion out there. You know, the lightning would hit a plant and boom, you know, a mixing plant would go up. Occasionally it would kill somebody, you know. So it's, uh, it's like automobile racing. It's got its inherent dangers, but it's somewhat limited and people kind of understand and accept the risk. Right. Like so many things. Like so many things. Like so many things. Driving on the freeway. Like driving cars on the freeway. Um, 
obviously this is technical, extremely technical stuff. And you, being CEO of this company, have started several other companies. Um, you possess enormous technical knowledge, but also are heavy in the business development side. So what do you consider your primary role to be, or what, 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 what is your role? So I'm CEO, and I think my real number one role is to keep the company sold. <laughs> sold to customers so that we can get revenues in, sold to investors so that we can continue to build Teller Cash Flow Positive, and uh, sell, sell to the public image. So you know we have to answer to the public in which we operate you know, as to why we're doing the things we're doing. So, so I spend most of my time on that, and I also have to keep it sold to the employees. You know, here's here's our strategy, and here's here's where we're going, and here's why we're going. Mm -hmm. And in in the government business, you always had to be an engineer to sell. It was just selling to other engineers. Only engineers were really successful at selling. They would pay attention to you. Yeah, there's sort of snobbery there. there there's uh, sort of this uh, knowledge barrier as well. Um, it's yeah. like you said, it's a highly technical thing, depending on what you're selling. Mm -hmm. So early in my career, I discovered after spending eight years and two degrees in engineering school, I really wasn't an engineer, okay. you know, at heart. So the engineers are typically very detail oriented, you know, uh, uh, driven by certain things that I'm not driven by. Uh, so the question is, what the hell do you do with eight years of education in engineering? And the answer is you either go into management or sales. So okay. I ended up going into sales and uh, did very well at that. And so this is a natural extension of that for me. Uh, I am very technical, actually. I understand these things, but I couldn't sit down and design something anymore. Uh, I, was, I was an analyst. I was an orbital analyst. And, and rocket propulsion and orbital mechanics are what I specialized in, and then satellites in particular. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I can, I can stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with a lot of my engineers, and I can smell bullshit when uh, when it's when it's uh, given to me and I think that's really sort of bona fides to be a CEO of a, of a highly technical company is you have to have those things and to be clear there are people who don't have those things that are successful at it but it certainly helps mm -hmm. I would certainly imagine one of the things that really caught my eye on your website was uh, I think that it was the idea that what you're interested in doing is freeing up really brilliant people to do really brilliant things. Mm -hmm. So you guys don't need to worry about sort of the things you're not good at, only focus on the things you're really good at. Yeah, we're not smart enough to know all the all the things people would, would do with space assets. So our goal in life is to be here to facilitate those smart people. And, and like I said, I'm not an engineer. We're rocket guys here. We're not smart applications guys. You know, we, we see a lot of things and we know through what we see, that there's a lot of potential out there. But the reality is we're not those guys. It's it's very similar if you watch Steve Jobs' Return to Apple uh, video out on YouTube. It's very instructive. He, he talks about when he came back to Apple the second time, their their distribution system was in a mess. And, and so they, they were piling up products that, that you know they didn't sell and they had to pay money on it. So he said, we're not smart enough to understand what people are going to want next week. We, we can't. So we have to design a system that responds to that. And when I watched that about a year and a half ago, something ticked in me. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's exactly what the space industry needs, is a system that's responsive to those smart people and the needs of the entrepreneurs, 
the explorers, the scientists, that entire ecosystem of people that use space. Mm -hmm. And so what would that look like? And, and the answer came back to launch, just solving this basic transportation problem is the first place you start because A, it's low-hanging fruit, B, the market's ready-made, and C, if you don't solve this, the rest of it doesn't matter. Yeah. So, so then once you solve that problem, then we realized, you know, we really had sort of a strategic thing that looked like a railroad in the Wild West in the mm. 1800s. So what can you then do with that? Yes, you transport people and goods, but what other things can you do with that that, again, enable smart people to do things? And that's where we came up with the software-defined satellite. So we're enabling uh, a continued lowering of the barriers. The first is to get the launch cost down from $100 million to a million and a half. Yeah. And that's what we've done. The second thing, then, is to actually put those assets in space so people don't have to be experts in building the satellites. They don't have to be experts in launching. That's a very esoteric thing. And just like when you make a, an app for, a, for an iPhone, for example, you're not an expert in communications networks. You're not an expert in how an iPhone works. You're not, you may be an expert in how the camera works on it if that's what your app uses. Yeah. So, so we want to take and, and replicate that system because... As I look at, at the ecosystem Apple created, it's brilliant because it created an application ecosystem that, that all the world's genius can lay out on and, and use. And it continues to succeed despite who's in, in control of Apple. The ultimate delivery mechanism. Right, right, exactly. So that, that's, we've been compared to Apple in the sense that, that our strategies are very similar. In, in that sense, we want to do for space what they've done for the, the computer industry. I would imagine that that's flattering. I like it. Yeah, I'll accept it. For sure. <laughs> I'm not mad at it. Um, what values or characteristics do you, what, what characteristics do you most highly value? Is it, is it hard work? Is it mm -hmm. persistence? Is it, is it technical brilliance? Now, the number one characteristics, never giving up. So persistence, if you will. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's true in racing. It's true in business. It's true in, in engineering. It's true in all aspects. I, I tell my kids this all the time. You know, don't ever give up. And you know, there's unflattering ways of saying things like nobody likes a quitter, but it, it goes beyond that. It, it, it's a state of mind. And so, as you probably know, I'm, I'm a big automobile racer. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that's made us successful, I've run a, an amateur race team here. We've done some pro events is we never give up. We never let a car problem dissuade us. You know, if you're driving and you have a, an issue on the track, you know, you can't let it get to your to your spirit of wanting to win. You know, that competitive spirit can't be broken by setbacks. Right. And so, so that's also true in business, absolutely true. You know, there are good days and there are bad days. And, and the bad days are the ones where you, you take a look at what's going on, but you never, ever give up. And, you know, the bad days come and go. And there's always a good day that seems to follow, especially if you don't give up. Right. Yeah. So then the second thing behind that, I think, is is having um, integrity. And I don't just mean honesty. I don't mean anything, not in the sense of Boy Scout integrity. I mean true integrity. You're true to yourself, that you have something that you believe in, that you're true to it. Mm -hmm. Because if that's, some people call it a moral compass. Some people call <laughs> it uh, truthfulness. Some you know, it, it, it's not necessarily a code that's imposed on you. It's something that comes from inside you. Mm -hmm. and, if, and if you don't know exactly what it is you're about, 
your decisions are never ever clear. Mm -hmm. And every day in life becomes a, a siege of conflict of interest the older you get. And, and so if you don't have that compass of sorts, it is very, very hard to navigate through the waters of life. We see them on the news, you know, the, the white collar criminals, we see them, uh, you know, the politicians that have made bad choices, that you know, let the fame go to their head, all those things. It, it all happens, I don't care what business you're in. And even, even down to the guys that are on the factory floor, you know, it's the same damn thing. Yeah, and if you're trying to build a successful business, you need to be able to, people need to be able to recognize that in you, which obviously they do because people are working with you. And, and well, that's a benefit, right? But that's not the goal. The, the goal, in my mind, is not to have people say, oh, that guy's got integrity. The goal is to actually make your life less troublesome mm -hmm. than it is through that integrity by, by having this idea of where you want to go. And, and it's always different for everybody else. You know, my sense of integrity is not necessarily the same as, as my office manager, for example. But th that you have that and that you stick to it is important. Mm -hmm. So folks that are listening that they say, you know what, I'm, this is fascinating. What, for, for a young person that's in school, what, what should they be studying? What, what? So the answer is easier than you think, but the application is much harder than you'll ever mm. imagine. <laughs> The answer is real simple. It's three parts. So, do something that you're that you're passionate about. Without that passion, you're lost. It's just like integrity. You got to be passionate about it because that's the fuel that keeps you going, even on the bad days. And then number two, you have to be good at it. And I've I've had people that I work with that are passionate about something but just aren't good at it. Mm. Musicians are an example, right? I mean, that's well, I'll admit that's a talent. Right? I, I used to play piano, but I knew I was not good enough. To be a concert pianist. So I, even though I was passionate about it, I never went there. Yeah. And so then the third thing is people have to want to buy it. So notice that none of this revolves around money, right? People that say, well, I want to make a lot of money, they're fooling themselves because that's not how you get to it. You get to money by these three things. And then the money just seems like it just happens one day. You wake up and you say, wow, I've done very well financially, you know, but it's because of these three things and you're focused on those three things. So the application of it is the hard part, right? So, so how do you find your passion? You know, how do you how do you know if you're good at it? You know, how do you, if you know somebody wants to buy it? And those are the hard things that, that you just have to go through trial and error. So my son, for example, and uh, bright bright kid, and when he was a little kid, you know, he's like ten years old. He was on, on computers and programming and all these sort of things. And and uh, I never knew what he would do with his life. You know, he. he I thought he'd probably become an engineer like me, uh, but then by the time he got to seventeen or eighteen, we got him into we got him into college, and he dropped out. He was in physics, but he just he's so bored by this, and he went through about four or five years of wandering, and uh, then he invented a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, hmm. and so it's called Nexus, and he's done really really well at it, and and he's he's he was passionate about it, and he was good at it, and finally. It was something that people eventually wanted to buy. And he struggled through those early years where he didn't have money and, you know, you know, people didn't see it as valuable and so on. But now it's come. And uh, so he's, he's, he's one example of, hey, you don't necessarily have to go to college. College is a, is a path. And it, it's a path I advocate, by the way, but it's not the only path. One of our first investors in Vector never went to college. And he was a, you know, a child prodigy genius with computers and so forth. 
So it's it, there, there's no set pathway, and you can't believe what people are telling you. You know, uh, don't believe what I'm telling you. <laughs> go go find out for yourself. You know, read, do, get involved, be a part of life. And and if if there's any advice I have for any kids is immerse yourself in things. You know, when when I was 15, my passion was cars. Still is. I mean, the only, the only reason I do anything is, is for the end result of cars. I like to joke that I started Vector so I can afford to pay for a team to go to Le Mans. And there you go. That's probably true, like Patrick Dempsey did. <clears throat> so, you know, uh, when I was 15, I went and I found a job in a, in a garage. And then I actually paid my way through college working as a Ford mechanic. Nice. You know, so it, 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 it self-reinforces, but I became immersed in things. And I, and I understood that world very, very well, and it led me to where I'm at, sort of by a sense of, set of circumstances and, and accidents and serendipity. So just wanting to get into the space business doesn't, it's not good enough. You better really enjoy and love. I never wanted to be in the space business, even though I was an early fan of Carl Sagan. He was one of my childhood fans, because he interests me in science. And so I wasn't interested, I was only interested in machines. So if it, if it was a machine and it moved and it went fast, I loved it. I was a typical kid of the of the sixties and seventies, and uh, we used to build little wooden soapbox derbies. I had a house on a hill. It's an old chicken ranch, and we'd build these soapbox derbies and spend our summers, you know, perfect. Yeah, daring daring death with these contraptions right. we built, you know, and innovating with different kinds of axles instead of nails. We went to steel axles, about stealing the the lawnmower parts and the whole nine yards. Yeah, and evolved into learning how to weld, you know, and building. Steel go karts, and you know this is this is what we did. I don't think kids do that anymore. Well, they anyway. don't, and that's sad because it, it, they can't immerse themselves in things. Mm -hmm. You know, our society society's become less tolerant of kids being kids, mm -hmm. and that's a sad thing. And and I never wanted to wanted to go into space. It was only because in college I was walking down the hallway, and I fully intended to go to work for Detroit, you know, General Motors or somebody like that. And uh, there was a poster that said, uh, NASA sponsored design course for a Mars rover. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, that sounds interesting. Uh, okay, so I went and talked to the guy. His name was Frank Red. He was a retired Air Force colonel. Came back to Utah. And he, you know, he'd grown up there, and he came back, and professor. And he had this money NASA paid him to have a design course. And so this was before computers, and I, I went home, and I, I was one of the few kids that had a drafting board in their, in their, uh, their, their college room. And uh, so I did drawings and, you know, of the rovers, and I was an overachiever. And so I, that's how I landed my first job at Jet, Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Nice. And the rest was history, right? And so I kind of got sucked into the space industry. It wasn't something that I, uh, that part was accidental. So you asked the question, so what are your three, okay, Mr. Hypocrite, what are your three things? You know, what's your passion? My passion is building things. I don't care what it is I'm building. Mm -hmm. I built a house once. Yeah, no loss that in a divorce. People say, aren't you bitter about that? No, I love building it. <laughs> I, I still dream about having built it. You know, it was a great house. Yeah. And and it was, you know, a replica of one of our founding fathers' house from the 1700s. Huh? And I, I took great pride in making it look like it was built in the 1700s, right? Cool. And I still have great memories from that. You know, so I'm a builder. That's my passion. And I'm good at it because I've been doing it since I was a kid. Yeah. And so the, the, the demand part, I found that, you know, the space stuff paid pretty well. So I made a lot of money in space, so I stuck with it, you know. And I, I have an automotive manufacturing business, and it doesn't do nearly as well as the space stuff. Right. Financially, it's a, you asked me one of your first questions. 
Is that a competitive business? You bet it is. There's a lot of people in it. Mm -hmm. There's relatively less people in the space business, so I was able to make my mark a lot easier there. Nice. That's awesome. As our time is drawing to a close, and I appreciate everything you shared with us, what else do you want to get off your chest? <laughs> so, you know, if you're, if you're young and you're wondering what to do with your life, you know, I just, uh, I, I think science is a great place for, for kids, and I think one of the messages I want to get across to everybody, not just kids, is do your own thinking. Don't listen to what you know, or, or even believe what you read. Do your own thinking. Be be intellectually independent. We're we're living in a world with so much information, much of it misdirected and false, some of it true, some of it real. You know, it is it is so valuable in this day and age to understand for yourself and develop an independence of thought. And that has got to be the most valuable thing that I can tell young people and adults alike. You know, we have these political arguments, which I can't stand, about fake news and all this other stuff that's going on right now. I, I turn the TV off. I can't stand right. it any longer. You know, and it's because people aren't willing to be independent. Mm -hmm. And there are people who are willing to be led by the nose and are happy to be led by the nose. Don't be those people. Be independent. That's, that's what Americans are. We're an independent soul. God bless. Well, I very much appreciate your time and your insights. What is the website where people can find out about you and Vector? Uh, so Vector is vector-launch.com. And I have a personal website, jimcantrell.com. So you can learn about all my crazy racing antics there. Come and check that out. I'll list all that information in the show notes as well as some other information that we talked about. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review, tell a friend, and as always, keep questioning because the struggle is real.